Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Empowering Families in Education. Please welcome Dr. Lindsay Burke, Director of the Heritage Foundation's Center of Education Policy. Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted to have what I know will be a fantastic conversation. There has never been a better moment for education freedom. In the modern era, America has never been closer than it is today to realizing Milton Friedman's vision for universal education choice. Case in point, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey last month signed into law what is now the nation's first truly universal education choice program, an education savings account open to every single Arizona family. West Virginia went nearly as far last year. Today, 32 states in the District of Columbia operates 76 private school choice programs. To be sure, there is still very far to go. Despite all of that progress, just 600,000 children are enrolled in private school choice options across the country, compared to nearly 50 million in public schools. And of course, teachers unions remain a powerful and counterproductive force in K-12 education. But we're here today to showcase a new coalition that will bring the dominance of special interest groups and government assigned schooling to an end. This coalition understands that the ultimate objective of education choice is freedom for families to select into learning environments that align with their values. This values-based case for school choice is at the heart of what my colleague Jay Green has deemed education reform 2.0. And that is what today's conversation represents a coalition of organizations reflecting not just education choice groups, but also groups like Moms for Liberty here today, and partners like Parents Defending Education, the Alliance Defending Freedom, and the Independent Women's Forum, who understand that the school choice movement is a solution to current cultural battles. That's also at the heart of new efforts like the Promise to America's Parents, developed by the Alliance Defending Freedom and rooted and accountability to parents, education choice, and transparency. But finally, before I introduce our speakers, mark your calendars, slide please, because on September 9th, the Heritage Foundation will be releasing our first ever Education Freedom Report card showing just how well states are or aren't doing on education choice and a host of other education freedom measures. We look at education choice, regulatory environment, academic transparency, and return on investment. So place your bets now for which state you think will end up on top. It is now my pleasure to introduce a great lineup of speakers we have with us today. I'll welcome them all up on stage. Dr. Kevin Roberts is president of the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Roberts previously served as the chief executive officer of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Dr. Roberts has a deep passion for education. After earning his PhD in American history from the University of Texas and spending several years teaching history at the collegiate level, 
Dr. Roberts founded John Paul the Great Academy, a co-ed K-12 Catholic liberal arts school in Lafayette, Louisiana. He served as the Academy's president and headmaster for seven years. And in 2013, he resigned from the Academy to become president of Wyoming Catholic College. Tiffany Justice is the co-founder of Moms for Liberty, an organization dedicated to fighting for the survival of America by unifying, educating, and empowering parents to defend their parental rights at all levels of government. In 2016, Tiffany also began serving a four-year term on the school district of Indian River County, Florida School Board. Dr. Corey DeAngelis is a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children. He is also the executive director of the Educational Freedom Institute, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, a senior fellow at the Reason Foundation, and a board member of the Liberty Justice Center. Dr. DeAngelis has authored or co-authored over 40 journal articles, book chapters, and reports on education policy, and he's the co-editor of School Choice Myths, Setting the Record Straight on Educational Freedom. Moderating our conversation today is Kaylee White, a commentary writer and the deputy editor of Restoring America for the Washington Examiner, focusing on religion, politics, and culture. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. Well, thank you all so much for being here. I'm really excited for the conversation that we're about to have. Um, there's so much that we could say about school choice and edu education freedom in general. And I want to kind of start um, by just asking you guys, what do you believe that school choice and educa education freedom is? And what does it mean for families? School choice and educational freedom to me means trusting parents uh, to make the best decision for their children. And unfortunately, we have seen a nation that has not trusted parents to make good decisions for their kids. So um, educational freedom means that parents get to direct the upbringing and the education of their children. And uh, that's the way forward in America as far as Moms for Liberty is concerned, trusting parents. I got four words for you. Funding students, not systems. Just allowing families' education dollars to follow the child to wherever they're getting an ed education. It could be a public school. If you like your public school, you can keep your public school, for real. But if not, you'd be able to take that funding to a private school, a charter school, or a home-based education option. Uh, we already fund people directly when it comes to higher education with the Pell Grant and the GI Bill. We already do this with pre-K programs and Head Start. The funding follows the decision of the family. You can take the money to a private religious pre-K provider with Head Start, for example, if you want. We do the same thing with food stamps. The funding follows the decision of the family. You could take it to Walmart if you want, but you could also go to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods or Safeway or any other provider of the service. Same thing with Medicaid, uh, with hospitals. You can take your Medicaid dollars or vouchers to a private religiously affiliated hospital if you want. So all I'm arguing with school choice or funding students directly is that we apply the same logic with everything that we do with everything else, with higher education, pre-K and every other industry to those in-between years of K-12 education. I agree entirely with what Tiffany and Corey have said, but Kaylee, what I would add is that school choice is about a quality of opportunity. It, it's difficult for me as a historian of our republic to think of another example in the last 75 years of a system that has gotten so much money that has done so much to resegregate American kids, resegregate them racially, resegregate them ethnically, and resegregate them socioeconomically. It is abhorrent to the American ideal that not only this exists, but that this is even a controversy. And so we do need every dollar to file every child so that every parent can make a decision for his or her child 
so that we can in fact guarantee equality of opportunity, which is the defining characteristic of the United States of America. And it seems like the school choice movement has gained a lot of momentum over the past couple of years specifically because of the COVID pandemic and because of school closures and the things that parents realized their children were learning. So I want to turn our attention to some of the concerns about woke curricula. Would parents having the power to send their child to the school of their choice put a lid on woke curricula? Would it help it? Yeah, totally. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for, for school choice, and we've made the test-based argument uh, uh, for a long time historically with, with school choice that you know your kids are stuck in a failing school because of the math and reading test scores, but there's a, another kind of uh, dimension of quality that parents started to look into uh, in the past couple of years, which is whether the school is aligned with your values. So now with school choice, you could have the funding follow the student to an institution that best aligns with their values and meets your needs in other ways as well. And then the competitive pressure should lead for, to the public schools focusing more on education as opposed to indoctrination. Uh, to follow up on that, I think the relationship between the parent and the teacher and the parent and school is so incredibly important. So no matter where you're sending your child to school, you need to build that relationship with that school. So I don't think that school choice or the idea of educational freedom frees us from worrying about a lot of this woke ideology creeping into schools. We know now parents saw during the pandemic sometimes when they wanted school choice that wasn't there for them in their communities, but they also saw sometimes they would move their child into another school that they thought was a safer place and it wasn't. And so really what you need is informed decision makers, parents with a lot of information about what a good quality education looks like uh, for their child, making those decisions about what's best for their child. And that really, again, starts with that relationship between the parent, the child, and the school having good communication. And I'd say because school choice increases transparency, it, it, it provides data in the market, so to speak, that doesn't exist now. It, it breaks up the monopoly that government-funded schools have. What it does in putting power in the hands of parents is highlight something we learned because of COVID, to your point, Kaylee. And it is that the more parents discovered the curricula that were being offered to their kids, the more unpopular critical race theory became. There is a direct correlation. Now, the two great patriots sitting between us deserve a lot of credit for highlighting that. They provided the ammunition for parents to go into their school boards and say, in spite of the fact you're not answering our questions, in spite of the fact that you're obfuscating, in spite of the fact that you're calling us domestic terrorists, we demand on behalf of our kids, but this is really important, on behalf of every American child, because this is America, that you stop teaching that nonsense. And I think the more, as we go into the next round of, of state legislative sessions, we can really push toward every dollar following every child. You're going to see that transparency. Most American families, let's face it, are going to decide to keep their kids in public schools. That can be fine, provided we also recognize, if you think about the research of Dr. Burke, and Dr. DeAngelis, Dr. Green, that where school choice exists, public schools improve in every measure we really ought to have the optimism of, as Americans to embrace this. And to follow up on that, you know, for a lot of my time, even as a school board member, I heard school choice, school choice, school choice. It was like school choice or die. And I think it's not school choice um, and not public education, but school choice and public education and reforming that system and recognizing that there are children being educated in America that right now are being taught that America isn't a very great country. Is that what we as Americans want being taught in our public schools? And I think it's a question that every American, not just parents, need to really grapple with.
I want to make sure we don't gloss over all the victories that we've seen over the past two years. We, get a, we should take a moment to thank Randy Weingarten yes. and the teachers unions for doing so much to uh, inadvertently advance the concept of school choice and homeschooling than anyone could have ever imagined after the, over the past couple of years. Uh, she overplayed her hand. You had the teachers unions lobbying the CDC to keep the schools closed, hurting kids academically, mentally, even physically. In some places, two weeks to slow the spread turned into two years to flatten a generation of children. You had the Chicago Teachers Union tweeting out that opening schools was racist and sexist and misogynist. They, they overplayed their hand and showed their true colors and we're all better off for it because in 2021, 20, uh, we're deeming it the year of school choice. 19 states expanded or enacted programs to fund students as opposed to systems the biggest uh, school choice expansions in a single year that I've ever seen. And then as Lindsay mentioned earlier, Arizona just went all in and went up to all those other states and said, you know what, we're going to expand educational freedom to every single student, every single family, regardless of income, they're going to be able to take their kids state funded education dollars to the education providers of their choosing. And in, in Arizona, they have the slimmest of majorities. They have a one seat GOP majority in the House and the Senate. So they all had to show up, vote for the party platform issue, and they got it done. And that makes me optimistic going forward for other states, particularly red states, to empower every single family um, uh, to, to, to have uh, educational freedom. Uh, but domestic terrorists, that backfired on the NSBA. 26 states left the NSBA. We might as well call them the uh, regional school boards association at this point <laughs> it turns out those domestic terrorists vote and they push back and they're a new special interest group parents uh who who are going to win the battle in the long run and you can call us whatever you want we're not <laughs> going to stop fighting for kids <laughs> so speaking of randy Weingarten, um democrats in the left have made themselves out to be the party of the little guy for years so why is it that they oppose school choice so vigorously why what is the motivation um, for them to oppose giving parents the power to, to direct the, the education of their children. Because it undermines their power. Sorry, Tiffany, I'll be really brief. <laughs> it, it undermines their power. And, yeah. and in fact, it's a misnomer to think that the American left, the Democrat Party, is the party of the little guy. When you think about the just deplorable consequences of the not-so-great society and the ridiculously named war on poverty, building out government-funded schools as part of that, we ought to, as conservatives, really embrace the project of public schools because it's part of our tradition of transmitting American ideals from one generation to the next. The working class movement in, in bureaucracies and systems, as Corey has written about very articulately, it's really important, therefore, Kaylee, to wrap up here that conservatives who haven't spent a lot of time on education reform recognize this is the civil rights issue of the 21st century, period. And American parents got to see very clearly the hold that unions had. As a school board member, I remember sitting in bargaining sessions and saying, okay, well, the district is bargaining for the district and the unions are bargaining for the union, really the people at the table, to be honest, as you see, you know, I call Randy the arsonist who pretends to be the firefighter. And, and so you have people, the union, and, and who's bargaining for the kids? Who's bargaining for the parents? I watched it. Unions stifle innovation in school districts, controlling things that you would never imagine a union would be controlling. Is your kid eating lunch at 9.30? Well, it's 
probably because of the bargaining contract. You need to look that up if you're a parent, right? And then America, all of America got to see as parents were struggling through the pandemic, the unions working to keep schools closed. And then you fast forward to even the representative assemblies and the meetings that they've had, and you look at the agenda and the things that they're concerned about, climate change, abortion, foreign policy, Randy Weingarten talking about Ukraine constantly. Focus on our children. American children aren't learning to read in school. What other industry would you pour more and more money into and have the outcomes that we have. If you were a surgeon and two thirds of the kids died on the operating table, will we still let you operate on children? Right? So I said recently, you know, I try to be as witty as Corey, it's hard. But I said, I said recently, the NEA should change their name to the National Extremist Association because they're representing the most fringe, far left, progressive ideology, and it's not reflective of what parents and, and really we believe teachers want. They don't represent teachers anymore either, to be honest. The National Extremist Association and the Department of Indoctrination need to be abolished. So let's, let's go with that. But it's worse than just being an arsonist that joins the fire brigade because this firefighter uh, just throws more money into the fire and it just keeps burning. It, it, she doesn't bring water to the fight, which, which would be school choice. Uh, but what, uh, another reason for this, Kaylee, just to more directly answer the question, is that 99.997% of campaign contributions from AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, this year have gone to Democrats as opposed to Republicans. School choice isn't a partisan issue with the voters on, on the ground. Texas just released a, a poll uh, yesterday, the University of Texas at uh, Tyler, 59% of Democrats supported it, 69% of Republicans, uh, a, a majority of independents as, as well. And uh, a real clear opinion research polling nationwide uh, in February 22 uh, also found that a supermajority of Republicans, Democrats, and independents support school choice. Uh, another thing that's changed over the past couple of years is the political wins, that this is becoming a litmus test issue for Republicans in particular, and coming out against parental rights and education at this moment is becoming a form of political suicide. Just look at what happened to Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. That didn't work out too well for him. And Glenn Youngkin really laid out a blueprint for success for conservatives going forward because the Democrats, whether we like it or not, are in a catch-22 situation on education. If they come out for the parents, the unions are going to get mad at them. If they come out against parents like Terry McAuliffe did, well, the new special interest group on the ground, parents, are pushing back. They've woken up they're paying attention, and they're holding politicians ac accountable at the ballot box. In Tennessee, you just had their Republican primary elections. Ten of the, the House Republicans were endorsed by the teachers' unions, or at least funded by the teachers' unions. Nine of the ten lost their seats. So uh, wake up and listen to the parents who are, who are never going back to sleep again. Now, school choice you know, comes in a variety of forms, whether it's vouchers or education savings accounts, and there are many different policies, including curriculum transparency that parents are also interested in passing. So what do the next few years look for the school choice movement, and where should we be looking to next? I, I would say all eyes on Iowa. So Governor Reynolds is a staunch supporter of educational freedom, and um, 
she pushed an education savings account bill this this past year, and uh, it made it through the Senate with all Republicans except for one uh, voting in favor, so easily passed that chamber, got to the House. She had 60 out of the 100 seats had an R next to their name, but they could not get it done, even though Reynolds held the legislature past its 100-day mark, which is pretty much unheard of in the state. So she fought. She didn't just talk about supporting educational freedom. She actually took action and took it a step further and went into the primaries and endorsed nine uh, Republicans with mostly school choice as the dividing line in that primary. And eight of those nine uh, uh, school choice supporters won. Um, and so it looks like we had the votes in the Iowa House. So it's not a, a matter of whether Iowa's going to get school choice next year, but how big of an initiative it will be. Hopefully it'll be universal like they did in Arizona. That's the gold standard. Let's, um, let's make sure we, we do it. I've also been looking at, at Texas I was just about to say, I mean, no well. disrespect to Iowa, but... <laughs> But Governor Abbott has voiced his most forceful support of educational freedom I've ever heard, calling in May of 2022 to have the state funding follow every single child to the public, charter, or private school of their choosing. And Texas, passed, the Senate at least, passed an ESA even before it was cool back in 2017, with all but two Republicans voting in favor of the ESA. The House quietly killed it, and people didn't really make all that much of a ruckus about it, but things have changed. Again, the political winds have shifted, and if that were to happen this year in Texas, uh, there would be a national um, uh, uprising and uh, everyone would, would be talking about it. And it would be a national embarrassment for te the, the Texas House if they don't get it done this session. But again, politicians have changed. In, in Arizona, for example, this, this past year, uh, they needed every single vote to, to, uh, in favor on the Republican side. Just last year, they tried something similar. Two of the Republicans voted against the proposal in Arizona. A lot of people don't know that. But there was massive pushback from parents, and one of those no votes, or it was three, one of the no votes actually co-sponsored the bill this year, uh, which is the biggest victory of school choice in U.S. history. And they said on the floor that part of the reason why was because they heard from parents. So parents can make a difference, and they're doing so. I'm going to push back a little bit because I was just sent a video recently that Governor Abbott was, Abbott was speaking about education and said some things, to be honest, that were a little bit concerning. And so to bring this down to like, again, kitchen table conversation here, what are parents concerned about? Parents are concerned about a system that has been lying to them. And so when you're looking at school choice and whatever education 2.0 that reform looks like, really listening to parents and hearing their concerns about these issues is important. So what I'm hearing from parents on the ground when they're talking about school choices, how am I going to know that a lot of these things that we're seeing being pushed down from the federal level are not going to continue to be tied to my child's funding when I move them to another school? It's a big deal to change where your child goes to school. It's an important decision that families make. Um, another question that has been kind of thrown out there that I've heard is how do you make sure that you don't get the Walmart uh, of schools in certain communities, right? How are we going to make sure that what the government can't get through the front door, they don't go and try to get through the back door through, you know, monopoly capital. And, and so we have to look at, at some real, there are some real questions. I think there are some answers. But I think if we really want to move forward in a transparent way, building trust with parents, which is what we want to do. We want parents to feel good about their kids' education because they know that their children are getting what they need to be successful in life. So I think moving forward, there has to be transparency even in the school choice movement. We have to be willing to, to listen to the hard questions and be able to answer them in a transparent and open manner so we can all move forward together. So I think that that raises a, a really great question that I wanted to ask you guys is that one of the concerns that some have said um, about school choice is that 
it's a sort of Trojan horse that would allow the federal government to have financial control over schools and their curriculum. Um, is that true? Is it not? What are, what are your guys' responses? Yeah, so these victories in 2021 and the one in Arizona, these are state-level policies, not federal-level policies. So that's, uh, you know, you don't want to worry about federal strings with those. But then, too, look, we, got, we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. You don't want to make perfect the enemy of the good. I understand the libertarian utopia of having no government involvement in education. I'm actually a libertarian-leaning individual myself. But uh, each individual family has the choice to accept the funding or not, and they can weigh the costs and benefits of, the, of, of, of accepting that funding. Um, but we shouldn't be able to tell another family that they, sh they shouldn't have the option to accept the funding or not. And the person who's really excited about the infighting, about whether this is going to be a step in the right direction or not, I think it is. I think most people believe that is an incremental win. Um, is Randy Weingarten on the sideline? She's even repeated this argument on Twitter that, oh, this is going to control private education. Is she saying that because she's a libertarian and against government control? Absolutely not. It's because she understands that if the incremental win doesn't happen, what we are left with is the status quo, her monopoly, kids are stuck and families are forced to take their kids' education dollars to a residentially assigned government-run school. And as far as having Walmart schools pop up, I haven't seen that. We have like over 60 school choice programs nationwide. And even if it did, I would prefer that than government-run institutions. At least you have an individual choice. Uh, a, a public monopoly is much worse than a private monopoly, which uh, I don't think those exist without uh, government involvement. But look, the great economist Thomas Sowell said it, said it best. Uh, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. Each policy switch or policy solution has has cost and benefits associated with it and the people who are making perfect the enemy of the good with school choice are focusing on one possible cost that might happen in the future while ignoring the real guaranteed cost of the status quo so we should accept the incremental victory not make perfect the enemy of the good but at the same time we should fight together against any uh, uh, regulations that might be included in these bills. We should watch the bills uh, very closely. In Arizona, for example, they had a testing requirement. Parents pushed back, and they amended the testing requirement out of the bill. And the last thing I'll say before moving forward is, is, is that the government can regulate private education if it wants to today without giving us a choice. So we might as well uh, allow families to have the opportunity um, because the government can write, I mean, look at in 2020, you had Elizabeth Bartlett from Harvard University calling to ban homeschooling without school choice involvement at all. Um, so you might as well get a bigger coalition on our side to defend against those future calls for regulations by having more people experience private education and homeschooling. And when that happens, society tends to have a more favorable view of things that are more mainstream. So if you have more opportunities to participate in private education, the likelihood of those calls for future regulations are, are, is much lower. And then look, nine out of 10 kids are in government-run schools today, and uh, these institutions are cranking out so little socialists that are going to vote for big government in the future. And uh, you might as well allow for an escape hatch, uh, which isn't perfect again, but it's, it's better than what we have and we should all join arms and fight together against any calls for regulations going forward. There's no bigger skeptic of federal funding and the strings attached than me. When I was president of Wyoming Catholic College, we told the U.S. Department of Education to keep its federal student loans and grants. We then had to tell our accreditor 
that it wasn't their business that we were doing that. So I say that to empathize with those friends, especially on the political right, who are concerned, as Corey described aptly, about strings being attached. Having said that, these, all of these programs are built around each parent, each family making that decision, and to Corey's point about the trade-offs, assessing what those trade-offs are. One of the things, to, to go back to Corey's comment about the 2017 bill that passed the Texas Senate, is that, that we fought at Texas Public Policy Foundation against was an overwrought regulatory environment that would have taken that choice out of the hands of parents. So I, it's really important for people who are concerned about that to be part of the process of bill writing, part of the process of advocating for that legislation to minimize the threat of those strings being attached. But I'll conclude by saying this, the school choice effort is but one part of reimagining American education. Simultaneously, we at Heritage, with the help of many in this room, will be ending the accreditation cartel in the next decade. And then by New Year's Eve 2029, it is our goal at Heritage to host a party which we celebrate the end of the U.S. Department of Education. When those things happen, when those things happen, then it really does minimize those concerns. Now, we've mentioned earlier how school choice benefits minorities and low-income disadvantaged children the most. Why is that? And is this something that minority families tend to support across both sides of the political aisle? I'll start with a, a story, Kaylee, and, and then I'm very interested in hearing what Corey and Tiffany have to say. When, when I started the school, John Paul Academy in Louisiana, we were the second school in the state to participate in Governor Jindal's voucher program. And all of the data that my colleagues here at Heritage, that Corey, other education reformers point to, show statistically that those demographic groups that are victimized by government-funded schools are precisely those who benefit the most from having choice in education. So that would be any group who are socioeconomically disadvantaged. But the story is that about a month into this program, this young mother came up to me at this school in the pickup line, young African-American mother, and she said, Dr. Roberts, she had tears in her eyes. She said, Dr. Roberts, I need to speak to you. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, what, what, what did we do unintentionally? And she said, being in this school has changed the life of my seventh grader, but it's also changed my life speaking about herself and therefore the lives of everyone in my family and every generation to follow. That's true for any American, but it's particularly true for those Americans who have not benefited at all from government-funded programs. Yeah, if you accept the left's def definition of systemic racism, the government-run school system is one of the, the clearest examples. There are disproportionate outcomes. The uh, government-run school system is highly inequitable, and so funding students directly allows more families to have educational opportunities, and school choice is the great equalizer. Uh, and if you look at the poll that I talked about from UT uh, Tyler just yesterday, the highest support of, of the breakdowns on the crosstabs in that school choice question was among black and Latino uh, uh, individuals, respondents on, on the, the survey, even higher than white respondents. Um, so there's survey uh, work suggesting that as well. And then if you just look at on the ground when these programs are implemented, um, non-white families are disproportionately more likely to use them. If you look at the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program, that's the case there. In, in D.C., there's the D.C. Voucher Program. 95% of participants are black or Hispanic um, use, using the D.C. Voucher Program. 
And the average household income of the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program is, I want to say, $36,000 a year. In D.C., I think it's about $30,000 a year as well, average household income of uh, participants using the program. So if you already have a great public school that you're assigned to and it's working, why switch? Um, you know, again, if you like your public school, you can keep your public school. That's part of the option set. This isn't private versus public. This is choice for families. Allowing families to choose their grocery store doesn't mean you're automatically anti-Safeway, for example. Allowing families to choose their school doesn't mean you're anti-public school. And uh, I think this is really a win-win solution. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, American mothers are united. Uh, we want to see our children thrive and reach their full potential. And uh, when moms got to see and, and really have, have been able to see, witness how their kids are doing in school, whether or not their children like going to school, they like learning, what we're seeing is that they really don't. They're not, they, they're not doing well in school. We got to see what they were learning. It looked like garbage. They're being pitted against each other. They're being told that um, somehow, you know, your, your capabilities in life or your potential in life is somehow um, related to the way that other people are perceiving you or, or, or um, that there are some factors that may uh, keep you from reaching your full potential in life. And moms across the board are like, why are you dividing our kids? Why are you not teaching our children what they need? And the the idea that any mother can't make a decision about what's best for their child is just ridiculous. So we have to all, I think, look and, and, and decide what is it we really want our education system to be doing and, and then empower parents, all parents, when it's not doing that to be able to, to have their voice heard, unfortunately. What education, and in my experience as a school board member, the education system has done, has tried to make education in general to be something that you know parents just really can't understand. Just leave it to us. You don't really understand what we're trying to do in school and, and don't ask any questions and just, and, and so moms are done with that. And so um, I, I think the future looks a lot like parents saying, you know, you're, my kid's getting an A, but do, what does that A really mean? And every American mom is asking that question. So to wrap us up, I, I think it's pretty clear from this conversation that the support for school choice is there. We've seen that with Glenn Youngkin's victory. We've seen that in Arizona's new legislation. How do we communicate the message for school choice among parents who might not know much about it, but who do want to have the power to direct the education of their children? I think you start by saying we across the political spectrum believe in American kids and we believe in publicly funded institutions that transmit shared values from one generation to the next. And the second thing is we really lean into the equality of opportunity. That is the distinctive characteristic of the United States historically, especially when you consider we're also the most pluralistic society in the history of the world since the Roman Empire. This is very noble, and it's not Republican and it's not Democrat. It's very pro-human, and I actually think not only is that intrinsically true, but it is the issue that will allow Americans to speak more civilly mm -hmm. about other differences of opinion we may have. So I think it is the linchpin to the future of America, and I think people will agree with that. Follow me on Twitter if you want to see how to message school. <laughs> no, but I, I, that is true. Look, um, fun students, not systems. Start there. You can you can bring in analogies like the food stamps and higher education, pre-K, and because a lot of the same people who support all of these other initiatives that fund the person directly as opposed to a government-run institution, they only freak out about it when it comes to K through 12. They'll say public money, public schools, and it's like first of all, there's no such thing as public money. It's taxpayer dollars. 
But at the same time, it's like, well, well, then why do you support public money going to private hospitals and and colleges and pre-K providers? Why is it okay for public, so-called public dollars to go to private everything else, but not for K through 12 education? I've seen people just stop in their tracks like, oh, well, wait, I do support public money going to private everything else. Why is it? And they, they don't know how to respond to it. And then that's usually when you get blocked on, on social media. But you can't block me, a real person. <laughs> They'll walk out of the room and say, I don't want to talk about this anymore. But um, but I think that's where you start. And then even just saying fund students, not systems, if you want to argue with that, you have, you're in the position of saying why we should fund the system and not the student. Right. So turning the burden of proof onto the other side has been very helpful in, in, in messaging. And then their only argument is this is going to destroy or defund the public schools. And it's like, well, the best response to that is, well, why would that happen? They can't answer it. That's when I get blocked or they'll say, well, it's because people want to go to the private schools. It's like, well, yeah, why do you want to trap them in the government run schools? Or they'll say, well, well parents, they, they, they just don't know any better, right? right. They, they can't choose. But it's like, well, I'm not a doctor, but I can choose my doctor. I'm not a mechanic, but I can choose a car dealership. I mean, people can figure these things out. And it doesn't matter if you're a low income family or, or not. Uh, you, you have the best interest of your child in mind and you know more about their needs than distant bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away. So I think putting the burden of, of proof on the other side is helpful. That was, he answered that very well. I mean, I, the audacity that some bureaucrat thinks that they know better than me for my child, right? And I think that's, that, that's what we saw. Um, and even as an elected school board member, I watched as other elected school board members um, abdicated their authorities. So it's really important that we just re-engage at every level of government in the United States. And uh, what we're doing at Moms for Liberty is really encouraging parents and people in their communities to get involved and run for office. Um, I think that uh, more people talking about what it is we really want uh, the primary duty of schools to be, which is educating students, is important. And um, there's room and space for everyone in this conversation. I think everyone kind of brings a different perspective um, to this fight. And it's important to hear everyone's voice. Great. Well, I think we're going to take some questions from our audience members at this point. Um, Thank you for a wonderful conversation. I'm from California. We recently had an ethnic studies curriculum public review, which struck a lot of really bad material out of it, which was then immediately poured into the teacher training materials. And when parents tried to access that, oh, it's private material is under contract. We can't share it, not subject to review. All the evils being poured into teacher training. How do we address that? Uh, pass laws in, in state legislatures to require that all of it be transparent. Mm -hmm. And you will see the little demons that protect that money run for the hills. And it, it's, it, it, I mean that intentionally. This is evil because it's dealing with our kids. And in the name of a right that doesn't exist, this is a public entity using our darn money, they are imposing unjust, evil doctrines on our kids. Mm -hmm. And so we have to demand, we have to have the political courage to, to cause our elected officials to have the political courage to demand that that nonsense happen. The good news is it's already started and we're turning the corner and even California will not be able to withstand the onslaught. And 
and to that point, you saw the San Francisco school board have that recall happen, right? And so what we're trying to do, again, by getting people elected into the school board that are paying attention, is the school board has access to professional development. They're able to set the course for that district as far as what the policy looks like and what the vision of that district is with the superintendent. And so um, we see a lot of activist groups working through procedure, uh, going through professional development, weaseling their way in. I watched a video this morning that said something about, oh, we're just changing the words around so we can worm our way around, you know, all of the all of the roadblocks. We're just going to keep putting up roadblocks and stopping these people in their tracks. And and uh, we are tireless. And as Corey said, we're not stopping. Parents are not stopping. And so the ripple effect that's going to happen from having people that are informed, that are paying attention, sitting on these elected boards, and then years from now, the momentum that's going to create, really creating a new political class in America of people who are not career politicians, but are concerned about their communities, right? And are taking the helm, I think, is, is how you continue to just keep letting the sunshine in, pulling back that curtain. I think the transparency stuff is big because it's another way to put the other side on defense. It's like, why, what do you have to hide? Why can't I see what you're teaching to my kids? And so I think that's a good move even just to introduce the bill. Uh, also, alternative pathways to teacher certification is, is huge. Um, defund the universities. Pa taxpayers spend three to $400 billion or more per year uh, nationwide on higher education, um, which is more per student than what we spend on K-12 public education. So it's a ton of funding that people haven't really paid attention to. And then school choice is another solution too, because uh, you'll, you're more likely to have a, an array of different viewpoints of teachers in different sectors. Yes, it can happen in the private sector as well, but at least families will have a choice. And the supply of private education isn't fixed once the demand is there and families have the dollars then you'll have probably more conservative private schools pop up as well. Hi, everybody. Um, would be curious to know, what do you find is the most common thing you hear in terms of parents having a breaking point with their child's school? Um, I get a lot of phone calls talking about the pornography in the libraries or the, this idea you can pick your gender, this radical sex ed or critical race theory, whatever. What's the most common thing you hear about where parents just say, I'm done? And they maybe defended the public school before, but now they become school choice advocates because they just can't handle the madness anymore. What's I think it's common? when they came to the when they came to the the board meetings, when they exercised their First Amendment rights, when they have approached the teachers and the administrators, and they've been ignored, and they've said, "Wait a second, I, I thought we were partners in our children's education." Um, I'm raising my kids. You're educating my kids. We work together. Oh, no, we don't. You won't answer my questions. You just gave me a bill for $30,000 to be able to look at the curriculum that you're teaching my child. Um, that, I think, was the breaking point for a lot of parents that just said enough. This is ridiculous, and, and we have to save our kids. Now, not every parent has the means right now to take their child out of school, and that's why we have to continue to create more options so that every parent has the opportunity to really direct the education truly to direct the education of their child. I think we want to be careful too with, um, I think a lot of the problems are the value-based problems. Families who thought their kids were in great public school started to see, look, there's, you're, you're brainwashing or indoctrinating my kid for 13 years. I need to pull them out now. And I think that uh, has really been part of the success over the past couple of years with, with school choice. But some legislatures have just been proposing bans on certain concepts, which I think could be a step in the right direction. But we're seeing videos come out from a group called Accuracy in Media, states that have bans, Idaho, Iowa, Tennessee. They're catching people with undercover journalism, the administrators and the teachers saying, yeah, we have a ban, but I'm just going to call CRT 
social emotional learning, or I'm just going to call it student mental health, and we're going to incorporate the concepts even if it isn't explicitly in the curriculum. So I feel like the bands, even if they are a step in the right direction and work sometimes, it's only a piece of the puzzle. School choice also has to be a part of that as a last resort if things aren't, aren't actually changing on the ground. Yeah, wherever there has been a lack of transparency is where parents had a breaking point. And that's a lesson about something larger, which is that as Leviathan has, has accrued power in, in the imperial city of Washington, mm-hmm. and in the increasing number of imperial state capitals, parents realize, people realize, that part of accruing power is not having transparency. It is the first step to breaking that power, because as soon as rational people, which would be the vast majority of Americans, see that, they want to take action. And I think it's really important as each of you contemplates your first step that you're going to take as a result of this panel. It is, what can I do to increase transparency in education, higher ed, tax policy, whatever it is you care about, foreign policy. This really, in a lot of ways, is, is, is what adhere, all of our different policy centers at Heritage adhere to is the very first step because it is the lesson for a free people, which is we have a right, a moral right, to understand how government is spending our money. Folks, I'm sitting back here, you can't see me. Um, First of all, great discussion, thank you so much. My question goes to, I'm I'm from the city uh, city of Detroit, and uh, we all know the the horrible system that exists there. Um, And one of the things that is common is, is the single moms who's you know who aren't married trying to raise kids can you talk a little bit you know terry mcauliffe you mentioned said you know parents don't have a right you know shouldn't have a right to have a decision over what their kids are learning he probably says that because he's relating to a lot of people that uh, probably don't have time to be concerned with that can you talk about the breakdown of the family and how that's contributing to this it's immense i'll i'll start Corey is a libertarian is wondering how he answers that. No, just, just, just <laughs> We're friends. I was going to bring up uh, this kind of happened in Texas, too, I with the you. lieutenant governor. Uh, the Democrat candidate said, Terry McAuliffe, hold my beer. Right. I'm going to call yeah. vouchers. Uh, vouchers are for vultures. Imagine oh. calling parents vultures instead of uh, just You can get away with that when, uh, all, all kidding aside, with a serious question and serious issue. That is the problem the breakdown of the nuclear family. That is the problem upstream from everything we work on in public policy. And therefore, if we can culturally and socially outside of politics and and policy, for the most part, focus on that in sort of our second step as a result of, of this panel, then we begin 10, 20, 50 years down the road to have less of a problem. But we are kidding ourselves as a people kidding ourselves if we think we can solve any public policy issue without first restoring the nuclear family. And I would just point to during COVID and during the pandemic, we have a lot of moms who are single moms who, um, I mean, the burden that was placed on mothers to try to um, work and to try to educate their children and to find someone that could sit with their child. I have four children of my own. Um, The stories I could tell you from virtual learning, it was intense. And I was able to be there with them when they were doing it. Um, So what we've seen is a nation that's really turned their back 
On moms and women and single moms, we see it more and more every day. Um, we believe in mothers. I believe every mother has the uh, has the best interest of their child at heart when they're making decisions for them. I choose to to have that belief, and I think we need to support women and and give them as much information as possible so that they can make the best decision for their child because it's their decision to make. Um, and we need to stop. I, I mean, as a as a society, and really, you know, Democrats in general contributed to a lot of the policies that have hurt. Um, have hurt single moms uh, more than anyone else. And that's just a reality that I see as a mom, that I hear from other moms, and I think it's how the left is losing so many women right now. I think uh, school choice could lead to a higher likelihood of having an intact family. Uh, Patrick Wolf at the University of Arkansas, along with Brad Wilcox, did a study finding private education being associated with a higher likelihood of an intact family, a lower likelihood of divorce. I did a study with Patrick Wolf on the Milwaukee voucher program using student level data. One, we found that it led to a reduction in the likelihood of criminal activity by the time the students were 25 to year, uh, 30 years of age. But we also found a 38% reduction in paternity disputes. There have been other studies such as uh, one by uh, Harvard and Princeton researchers, Dobby and Fryer in New York City, their Harlem's Children's Zone uh, charter school. Winning a lottery to uh, attend one of those charter schools was associated with a 100% reduction in incarceration for male students and a 59% reduction in the likelihood of a teenage pregnancy for female students. So there's a lot of these non-test score benefits associated with school choice as well that uh, most people don't consider. And I would be remiss if I did not mention the fact that we are moms for liberty. Uh, we believe that strong men support strong women. Uh, but honestly, there have been moments in this fight, as I watch women stand up across the country and lead, that there have been questions about where are the men? Where are the men in America standing up and, and having an issue with this? And I think we've pushed men out of our society in some ways or having an opinion about certain things like education or like child rearing. And we need to invite them back in the conversation and empower men to be our partners in really, you know, riding the ship of America. You all mentioned Governor Youngkin uh, multiple times, and as a Virginia resident, I'm hopeful that he will do something with education freedom, um, but I haven't seen too much evidence that that is what's going to happen. Um, Virginia is way behind other states. We only have maybe seven charter schools, whereas other states have hundreds, and we have a tiny little private tax credit scholarship program that Governor Youngkin did restore funding for in the budget, so thankful for that. Um, what do you all hope to see from Governor Youngkin when it comes to education freedom or school choice? What do you think he should be doing as he prepares for the next legislative session? Given his abilities, his cheerfulness, the fact that I think he's one of the next generation of, of leaders, not just on the, in the conservative movement, but of American policy innovators, we expect universal school choice in Virginia, period. Yep, yep. So I was going to point out he saved the tax with the amendment proposal in the budget. It was going to be a cut of like 50% of the tax credit scholarship program. So you can also expand the tax credit scholarship. The tax credit is only like 65% right now. You can just tweak that to 100%. You'll have more supply of funding available to families. And he was just on WMAL a few months ago with Vince Coglianesi, and uh, he was directly asked about support for education savings accounts, which is what they passed in Arizona, and Glenn Youngkin said he was supportive of education savings accounts. And I think, you know, this, this past session, they didn't have the Senate, but they did pass a, an ESA out of the House with all Republicans in favor, 58 to, uh, 52 to 48. Once they get the Senate, and maybe, maybe who knows, maybe there's a Democrat or two in the Senate uh, with Glenn Youngkin leading on this issue, uh, they could get it done even even sooner.
Hey, thank you all very much. Um, you're, uh, you, you talked about 100% uh, reduction in incarceration, incarceration rates. Those are pretty damning statistics um, for the other side, uh, and yet sort of seems like their ranks are still growing. Uh, so I'm curious, just can you maybe speak to um, the urgency of the moment a little bit and just just kind of help us all understand that even though it doesn't make sense, they're still getting their way. And because I, I can be lulled into a false sense of confidence when I when I just reflect on how bad a lot of those ideas are, but they're actually really pervasive. And so um, can you just reflect a little bit on that for us about what we can maybe be doing? I don't think they're getting their way. I mean, look, we've had so much victory on school choice, 19 state victories in, in 2021, Arizona going whole hog, uh, allowing all families to have a choice. And um, in, in, in primaries, uh, union-backed politicians are getting their butts kicked. And uh, so we, at the American Federation for Children, we, uh, our growth fund and our state affiliates have won, I think, 79% of the primaries that we've been involved in. So uh, this is becoming a political winner. Look at, uh, has anybody seen the graph where it shows the, the Democrat support uh, on education versus Republicans? And over the past couple of decades, it's been Democrat by like double digits. And then it's all of a sudden switched towards Republicans. So Republicans have a golden opportunity to become the parents party. Glenn Youngkin tapped into that. And a lot of people thought that that was just a one-time thing. You know, the schools had been closed. It was a long time ago. But just last month, Two left-leaning groups had polling out, finding Republicans up on education. One of those groups was the American Federation of Teachers. Randy Weingarten's own union commissioned a poll in battleground states, finding Republicans up on education by one point. Uh, and and that you might say that's not a, a ton, uh, but coming from 2017 Gallup, finding uh, Democrats up by 19 points on education. This is a seismic shift in support towards Republicans. Hopefully they don't mess it up. Um, and the one way to truly secure parental rights and education is to allow them to have a choice. There's other policy reforms as well, but school choice is the ultimate way to truly secure parental rights and education. Uh, so look, if the Republicans wanna give a gift to the Democrats, they'll stay quiet on education like they've done for far too long. But if they want a red wave in November, they'll lean into it like Glenn Youngkin did. And I, I think it's time that people put their money where their mouth is as far as uh, supporting candidates. You know, in, in uh, Duval County, uh, uh, the AFT and the NEA put money in uh, into races, school board races there. And so what we need to understand is good school board candidates need to be funded. The union has known for a very long time. They take all of those dues and all of that money and they put it to work and, and they become the boots on the ground for candidates. So it's time for us to contribute to candidates get out there and knock doors, get involved and recognize that if we want to gain ground here, we're going to have to do the work to make it happen. Well, I think we have time for about one more. She just had her hand up for a while. Yeah. It's hard to get to the people What's in the up, middle. Keisha? Thank you. Thank you. My name is Keisha, um, Duval County, Florida, free state of Florida. Uh, so I was wondering, um, back in 2018, Governor DeSantis won uh, heavily by 100, over 100,000 black moms that supported school choice. That was their issue. Um, Corey, in particular, where do you see school choice going in Florida? Because I think we could do, expand it. Yeah, I mean, just... Just uh, last month, Governor Ducey basically walked up to Governor DeSantis and <laughs> snatched the school choice championship belt out of his hands because for a long time, Arizona and Florida were neck and neck 
uh, leading the way on educational freedom. But Ducey just signed into law uh, the most expansive by far uh, school choice initiative, empowering every single family. So hopefully this sparks some friendly competition. I, I see uh, Governor DeSantis, he's super based. He should come back and say, you know what? Give it back, Governor, Governor Ducey, um, and we're going to do the same thing, empower every single family uh, to have an option. Florida, and we, I don't want to make, it, make light of um, the, the Florida victory in 2021 either. There was the most expansive school choice uh, victory in Florida in 2021. Uh, it just wasn't the most expansive in the nation. Um, so, but I do see, um, no pun intended, but <laughs> I do see that, um, that there is some friendly competition. You see Abbott coming out, uh, DeSantis, that's, that's the obvious next, next um, state that we'd like to see something happen. Florida leads in so many ways. We've seen Ron DeSantis lead in so many ways, and I've been so impressed as he continues to be an advocate for school choice that he also looks to reform public education and to bring transparency and to make sure that parents have a voice in every decision uh, that, they're, that, that is being made for their child. And so I think that the future looks a lot like that, right? Putting parents in the driver's seat and making sure that they have all of the information that they need to make the best decision for their child regarding education. Well, I, I want to thank you all again for coming out. I want to thank our excellent panelists and encourage you all to pay attention to the Washington Examiner's Restoring America site this week, where we're going to be publishing dozens of op-eds from heritage experts, from ADF, IWF, and many other organizations on this topic um, and really pushing education freedom as families start to head back to school. So thank you guys again.